We are the loneliest society that has ever been. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, not the average, but the most common answer is none. There are more people who have nobody to turn to than any other option. In fact, half of all Americans asked, how many people know you well? Say, nobody. Why are we alive? Why do we exist? You, me, and everyone listening to your show, right? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really fucking good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down. But they were much better at banding together into tribes and cooperating, right? Humans evolved to live in a tribe. If you were separated from the tribe, you were depressed and anxious for really good reason, right? You were about to die. You were in terrible, terrible danger, right? Those are the impulses we have. But we are the first humans ever to try to disband our tribes, to think that we can go it alone. That is author Johan Hari. And this is episode one of the best of 2019 on Better Than Yesterday. And welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Washi Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode one of the Best of 2019 edition, the summer editions, while um, we all take a, a much-needed break. But I say we all, uh, we all, except for Andy, my producer, who has to still cut this together. Thanks, Andy. Merry Christmas. If you're new to the show, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. What is this show? It is simply a podcast that hopes to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. It's a conversation with somebody that I guarantee in the next hour and a bit, something you'll hear will shift the way you've already been thinking about something and you go, oh, you know what? Today's a little bit better than yesterday. And that's it. That's all it is. Um, if you like what you hear, there's hundreds of other episodes you can find. And these next couple of weeks are going to be the four best ones that came out in 2019. So if you're new, if you've just 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 found the podcast, then maybe these best ofs will give you a bit of a look in as to what what we do here. Uh, Johan Hari was without a doubt one of my most emailed in, most called in, most tweeted in, most Instagrammed in, most the most amount of feedback. And it was an extraordinary conversation, which we'll we'll get to in, in a in a second. I did want to say thank you very much to everybody that sent in a picture of where they're listening today. Some really, really brilliant stuff. One came in from Teresa Lau, who's in the passenger seat of her car, listening to the podcast on a bit of a road trip, making some crochet shopping bags. Say no to plastic. Look at that crochet shopping bag. Audrey's next to me feeding Wolfie. Look at that crochet shopping bag. Look at that. Look at that. You can go shopping with that. That's very cool. You could roll around Coles and go, that's right, I made this. Oh, you've got your little Coles nylon one. That's nice. I made this. Yeah, maybe not out loud. Maybe not out loud. <laughs> uh, thanks for the great content. Thank you, Tess. Happy shopping and safe ride, safe drives. A bit of a follow-up on this one came in from, where is it? Uh, Kent, who has a picture of him and his daughter escaping the heat in Brisbane on the weekend, listening to the excellent Tom Nash podcast in the cool of a Bunnings car park. Yes, we did the sausage sizzle. It would be unpatriotic not to. Now, this is a follow-up because he said a couple of weeks ago, you read my comment on iTunes where my daughter learned to say fuck from your podcast. I thought she would be delighted to hear you reading it out. And let's just say now she really knows how to use that word loud and clear. And he sent some photos in and 
his daughter, he says, was born with a rare brain condition. I'm going to do my best to pronounce it. Holoprosencephaly. Holoprosencephaly, where her brain is fused and hasn't fully formed. She's 16 now as an incredible young woman. She cannot walk or talk very well, but look beyond her disabilities. You see the most incredible and caring and intuitive girl you'd ever want to meet. Sophie's eldest brother was born severely premature, 497 grams. That is a little human being. That's incredible. At the time, the third smallest baby ever to survive in Australia at that size. My goodness. Having survived that against all odds was diagnosed at three with autism. This in itself posed a whole different series of challenges for us as a family. Sandwiched between these two, which we call the bookends, are our two other neurotypical kids who are outstanding human beings in their own right. They've grown up learning deep lessons of love, tolerance and giving because of the gift of their other two siblings. I've been encouraged to put words to paper and I'm writing a book about our experiences as a family. It's not an easy life, but it's our life and honestly, it's wonderful. Kent, I could not be more excited to read your story and to learn the lessons that you could possibly teach us about raising a family like that and how you've managed to keep your relationship together as well. Mate, I can't wait for you to write it, mate. That's going to be awesome. And a final one here from Shannon. Holy crap, I just laughed my tits off listening to the podcast with DJ Tom Nash. What a dude. I love the digs at DJs. Hilariously good. As a lover of all genres of music, this made my day. Thanks for making my Friday. Yes, it was pretty good. The Tom Nash podcast on Monday was extraordinary. Probably the only time I'll have a quadruple amputee on the show. And most of the time we talked about DJing. And it was exceptional. So thank you very, very, very much for everyone that wrote in. If you want to write to me an email, just easy. It's sendosheremail at gmail.com. That's it. Super simple. To check in with you really quickly, um, we moved house this uh, week as um, it's been uh, pretty upside down here, which has been uh, intense. I've spent my day building IKEA things and uh, enjoying some reciprocating saw action in the backyard. Yeah. Safety goggles, gloves, and just chopping out dead branches of stuff. Because we, we, we bought an older house with an older garden that has been kind of not... Oh, oh that's, that's cute. So there's a little video of Wolfie asleep. It's pretty cute. We bought an older house with an older garden that hasn't really been seen to in a little while. So we needed to chop some things that were dead out. And I did some chopping. And it was good. Listening to Erica Badu, of all things. But yeah, another week here in sydney as what's up bub that's his ear imprint on my arm you've got an, his ear imprint on your arm he's oh sorry that's sorry. okay no it's all right wolfie's sitting on the couch next to me feeding hey buddy he had his first bottle of water today well, sips sips first sips of something that wasn't breast milk today and he giggled it was pretty good it happened at bath time i missed it because i was using a power drill to build ikea while listening to marvin gay so I missed the giggle, but it was pretty good. Uh, but yeah, another week here in New South Wales where, where the, the forests just keep burning and keep burning. And another week where, oh, no, no, it's not possibly climate change. Hell no. I mean, she's some chimney crickets. I had the extraordinary fortune to speak with two RFS volunteers this week, a husband and wife team. And they were telling me about their experience moving from the central coast of New South Wales out to a, a more regional area where they live and the resources that they have where they are now, where they're slightly more remote, are just, they're so undergunned, so undergunned. But that's all they've got. That's their only line of defence between the community and fire. And um, my manager, Lauren, her family have 
a space out on the Hawkesbury, which is north of Sydney and inland a bit. And their farm was, you know, they basically surrounded by trucks and helicopters and it was pretty dicey for a while there, just defending their, their land because that's all they can do. They just have to fall back and defend the property. And they were speaking with some of the RFS guys and it's this, what is it, the second week of December and these men and women have already used every holiday day, every sick day, every piece of carer's leave, every single piece of day they can get off work, they've already taken. And we're predicted to burn this way till March or April. There's got to be a better way. I don't know what it is, but this is not going to work, is it? And we can't expect volunteers who are under-resourced to fight blazes that, in my brother's words, we just simply don't have the capabilities technologically to fight right now. Because they're bigger than anyone expected. So, yeah, if the people that you voted for or the people who are representing you in Parliament aren't doing everything about this that they can possibly do right now, you should probably send them an email or give them a call. Yeah, I would say that's probably a good thing to do. Anyway, that's all we can do, guys. We've just got to get in touch with the people that we can get in touch with and let them know. That's local government too and state and federal. But, yeah, if your local council or local shire isn't doing everything to get more funding, man, get on it because <laughs> they're, they're representing you. That's democracy. Thank you very much to the folks that did review the show on iTunes. It does help a lot of people discover the new show, discover the show, sorry, newly. And um, it really helps us, you know, pop up in people's feeds and they can find us here. Great one came in from Michael. Listen to the Tom Nash episode from the archives. Laughed out loud several times. Set me in a much better mood to start the day. Certainly was better than yesterday. Does what it says on the box. I laughed on the way to work this morning. Michael, thank you so much for that. Yeah, Tom's an extraordinary guy. Thanks for that review. Really appreciate it. And this one came in from Laura. My partner and I started listening to your podcast on a nine-hour drive to the Gold Coast. Not only did the time fly by, but the quality of your content is outstanding. Both of us enjoyed it so much. I personally loved the family-related podcast, and my partner was super into today's society, social media, and security talk. Oh, that was really good with Craig Costello. That was a good one. You've got two new subscribers right here. Hey, cool. Thanks. And, you know, thanks for listening to us on the road trip. That's that's awesome that you can find a podcast that two people can listen to. So thanks very much for reviewing the show. Um, just pop into the iTunes podcast space, wherever it is now, and just leave a rating and review. It really, really does help us. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let me tell you about my guest today. Johan Hari is the author of two New York Times best-selling books. His first, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, is at the moment, it probably already is, being adapted into a major Hollywood feature film and a non-fiction documentary series. You can find his TED Talk, which is really good, Everything You Know About Addiction is Wrong. Just look for that on TED.com, I think it is. And his uh, most recent book, which is why I'm going to touch with him, is extraordinary. Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. And it really hit me because when I read the book, obviously, you know, I've got a a different brain and all kinds of weird diagnoses and I just want to find out more about what's going on. And when I read his book, it's like, oh, this is interesting because he describes depression and anxiety less about what's going on in your brain and more about what's going on in your environment, that the causes of anxiety and depression, while in some parts are indeed genetic, they are in my case, environment and how we live goes a long way to affect us. Um, To quote uh, Johan directly, if you are depressed and anxious, you are not a machine with malfunctioning parts. You are a human being with unmet needs. The only real way out of our epidemic of despair is for all of us together to begin to meet those human needs for deep connection to the things that really matter in life. Yeah, it's a cracking cracking take on it. Over the course of uh, his book, Johan actually finds and identifies nine different causes of anxiety and depression, and then he goes on to offer solutions to the issues that he talks about. But at the bare minimum, uh, what he's found over his exhaustive research, he traveled the world and spoke to William people. Most of what he found, we kind of know already, but he's kind of written it out in black and white. Basically, like five things. One, we, we as humans, we need to feel that we belong. Two, we need to feel that we're good at stuff. Three, we need to feel valued by others. Four, we need to feel secure about our future. And five, we need to feel that our life and work has meaning. You take those five things away and it's pretty easy to see how you can slip off the edge of reality. I can certainly guarantee that um, I have experience of that. So two quick things before we kick off. Johan and I talk about medication in this conversation Do not stop or change your dose of medication without talking to your doctor. Just don't do that. We discuss the helps and hindrances of medication. I disclose as I have done with you many times that meds have saved my life. They've helped me incredibly until they didn't. And then it was time to find a way to live without them. Now I'm finding ways to live with them again because I needed to get back on them. But that's my journey, my journey alone in that I was on them, I was off them, I'm back. Not anywhere near what I was on, but I'm back on something a little bit now. I made those decisions um, between myself, my doctors and my wife, and we all talked about those decisions and moving on and off and back on again over the course of many months. So I'll say it one more time, do not stop or change your dose of meds without talking to your doctor. Also, this conversation does cover some pretty intense issues, as you'd imagine, severe childhood trauma, including sexual assault and violence. Uh, So... Just so you know that up, up front. But if I know anything about triggers, it's that if you avoid them, they get worse. So this is a safe conversation between two people who are speaking to try and have 
the end in mind of living free of pain and agony. So I would encourage you to try and stick with the core of what we're talking about. I can't thank Johan enough for being on the show. He made time out of his very busy schedule to get on Skype with me. The book's called Lost Connections. It's out now. I can't recommend it enough. There's a few glitches in the Skype call. So thank you very much, uh, Andy, for helping me out there. I hope they don't get in too much in the way of this conversation. When I first published this episode, it came as two parts. We're going to listen to it all today as one big chunk, the way nature intended. So enjoy. Whatever you're doing with your podcasting today, me, I was, uh, yesterday I was podcasting at the Ikea and Bunnings Adventure. That was really good, listening to heaps of podcasts. Had Mark Marin with me as I wheeled around the market hall. It was great. So I hope you, whatever you're doing, enjoy this conversation with Johan Hari. Is it insanely early where you are? No, not at all. It's eight o'clock. The bin men have just come, so that's nice. So I always think the fundamental division between human beings is not like left-wing people versus right-wing people or east versus west or any of that. It's morning people versus everyone else. My dad naturally wakes up (laughs) at five o'clock in the morning every fucking day, right? Wow. Naturally, I would wake up at like three in the afternoon, right? That's just my... Wow. So I'm constantly in awe of people who... Yeah, I'm very suspicious of people who like to be awake. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't. It, it's funny you mention that actually, because I I used to work night shift for a long time. I did the overnight show on my radio station when I was in my twenties, and before that, I'd been a roadie for many years. So I worked nights for a long time, and it took about seven years to get out of that. You get into what's called a sleep hole. Your body just has a very hard time. Adapting. None of this happened before the invention of the electric light bulb, mind you. So this is a very modern phenomenon. But now, at the moment, because I I, uh, I write, I don't know if, how much uh, you know about my journey, but um, I I've currently been off meds for about uh, 14, 15 months, and part of that is monitoring my anxiety levels. And I put a little score out of five in my little book every morning. And I'm currently I'm doing the uh, the old wakey up before the alarm, like 45 minutes before the alarm. It's like, it's just, I wanted to be sleeping, <laughs> not being able to get back to sleep. So I, I managed to make it all the way to I, probably like 6.44 this morning. And then the alarm went off at 6.45. But I'm taking that as a win, Johan. <laughs> do it, do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's uh, that's kind of what's going on. Well, I'm grateful that we're, we're talking today. Thanks for making this happen, mate. I'm, I'm really, really grateful. I loved your book, mate. Oh. I absolutely loved your book lost connections uh, i found it really interesting and when i when i speak to people and you know tell them I'm, I'm talking to you and just basically you know talk about the really simple premise which well i'll get you to explain because you people really get the premise basically is what i'm saying but i'll get you to explain the premise a little uh, you know because you've obviously done it many times you you quite powerfully compare anxiety and depression to nausea would you be so kind as to just kind of walk everyone through that for me please yeah, I'm just, um, I should just apologize to your viewers and listeners because I've got a bit of a cold. So I've had enough lemsip to kill a whole fucking field of cows at the moment. So if I seem slightly out there, I'm normally more articulate. I also feel it's unfair that there's this contrast between you and this beautiful, like, Australian white light. And I'm in this, like, grim, yellow, British winter where we're just having massive snow. And the contrast between your, like, perfect cheekbones and my, I once had, uh, I feel like the intercutting between us is not fair. I once got a really bad food poisoning 
that. By, by the way, you're not drinking your own piss, are you? That literally is what that thing that you just had looks like. No, no. I, uh, you're, I'm, I'm drinking a... Um, what's in here? Oh, this is um, just a little mixture of something that I drink in the morning. It's like apple cider vinegar and, and water. You realize it looks uncannily like you're drinking this, don't you? Like- I believe, Johan, I've been told that drinking your own wee is something that, you know, some people and- do. Um, and when they're not lost at sea um, as a therapeutic thing, I'm personally not into it. But whatever yeah. whatever floats your boat. Just, just to just, dispel your myths, just, it's it's actually quite a uncom- – we had a 42-degree day here yesterday, and it's now 21. So it's literally half that, maybe less. I was like, the contrast between your two bones and mine, I was thinking that I once got such severe food poisoning that I literally could not eat for five weeks. And it was in the fourth week that my cheekbones briefly appeared from like beneath – the sea of flesh on my face. And then the minute, literally on the second day, I started eating again, my cheekbones were gone. I have never been seen since. So I feel the... <laughs> anyway, so you were asking me to compare um, depression and nausea. Yeah, I mean, I think this sensation of how depression and anxiety feel, it was part of the mystery that made me write Lost Connections, right? Because I had these... There were this series of mysteries that were hanging over me and I couldn't find the answers to in anything I was kind of coming across. So I was, I kind of realized, okay, you're going to have to face this and kind of go on a journey to try to understand it. So the first mystery is I'm 40 years old. I just turned 40 a couple of days ago. And every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased in Britain, in Australia, across the Western world, right? Actually, Australia is off the scale on this. And perhaps we can talk a bit about why. And I want to understand, well, why, right? Why is, why is this happening to us? Why are more and more of us finding it really hard to get through the day? Something must be going on. And the second mystery was a more personal one, which is, and go, really goes to your question, which is that when I was a teenager, I went to my doctor and I explained that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me, right? I couldn't control it. I couldn't regulate it. I felt very ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story that I now realise is really oversimplified. It's not that it has no truth in it, but it's oversimplified. My doctor said, well, we know why people feel like this. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. It makes them feel good. Some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. What we need to do is just give you this drug. It was an antidepressant called Siroxat or Paxil. um, And you'll be fine. So I started taking this drug and I felt really significantly better for a few months. And then this feeling of pain started to come back. So I went back to my doctor. My doctor gave me a higher dose. Again, I felt better. Again, this feeling of pain came back. And I was in this cycle until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose you're allowed to take, at the end of which I still felt terrible. So I wanted to understand, like, not just why so many people are feeling like this, but why was I feeling like this, right? So as you know, I went, I went on this big, long journey all over the world. I wanted to meet the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and crucially what solves them. But also just people with really different perspectives from like an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better, to a lab in Baltimore where they're giving people psychedelics to see if that would help. And I learned loads of things, but I guess the heart of of what I learned is that there's scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are in our biology, your genes make you more sensitive to these problems. And there are real changes in your brain, or it's not a serotonin lack. There are real changes in your brain that can make it harder to get out that happen when you become depressed. But most of the factors driving depression and anxiety up and up and up are factors in the way we're living. And once you understand that, it opens up a whole different way of thinking about it and a whole different set of solutions, ones that actually do work. 
But you're you're not just you're not just making this claim out of, out of hyperbole. You really you really went on a mission. You 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 got a lot of miles in on your on your shoes there, and and took a lot of steps around the world. Took a lot of flights. You're not just making this claim in a Facebook post typed in all capitals with triple commas and stuff. You, yeah, you, really, you got really a lot of research behind this, right? Yeah, huh? Essentially, one of the things that was really shocking to me was to realise that this isn't like. The, the evidence that depression is being driven up by some of the some crucial facts, specific factors in the way we're living, isn't some like wacky marginal position. This is a position of the leading medical bodies in the world, the World Health Organization, the, lead, the leading doctor at the United Nations. Um, so this isn't some kind of trivial thing. And I think it's, it's, it's slightly weird thing, isn't it? Because it, it doesn't take long for you to explain this to people to see how much it relates to their own lives, right? So everyone listening to your show knows that they have natural physical needs, right? Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be screwed really quickly, right? But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. You need to have meaningful values that guide you through life. And our culture is good at loads of things. I'm glad to be alive today. I like dentistry and Netflix and Kylie, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs for people. And that can sound a bit fancy and a bit abstract. So I'll give you a very specific example, um, one that's very relevant to Australia. There's an amazing Australian called Professor Hugh Mackay who's done really good work on this. So we are the loneliest society that has ever been, right? There's a study, Australia and Britain are just behind the US. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis. And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, not the average, but the most common answer is none. There are more people who have nobody to turn to than any other option. In fact, half of all Americans asked how many people know you well, say nobody, right? And I remember I spent a lot of time talking with uh, an amazing man, Professor John Cassiopo, who was the leading expert in the world. He was at the University of Chicago. And he said to me, why are we alive? Why do we exist? You, me, and everyone listening to your show, right? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really fucking good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down, but they were much better at banding together into tribes and cooperating, right? So just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. If you think about where we evolved, the way we evolved, if you were separated from the tribe, you were depressed and anxious for really good reason, right? You were about to die. You were in terrible, terrible danger, right? Those are the impulses we have. But we are the first humans ever to try to disband our tribes, to think that we can go it alone, right? And if you ever separate a bee from its hive and look at what happens, it just goes crazy, right? It starts flying around really chaotically, put a bee in a jar, it will just go mad, right? And there's a similar thing happening with us. This loneliness is a massive drive. We know that loneliness has massively increased. There's loads of evidence. We know that loneliness causes depression and anxiety. There's loads of evidence for that. This is one of the key factors that's, that's, that's playing out. Now, that's not a problem in your brain. That can lead to problems in your brain that make it somewhat harder to get out. And I go through that in the book. But, but that, that's something very obvious, which everyone can see playing around in someone they know. And so I started to ask myself, well, what is the solution to that, right? Because the solution to that clearly is not just to drug someone. The drug might give them some relief and that has some value, but that's, that's it's, you know, it's, it's like, um, it's like I always think when you see these Americans who, I remember when I first lived in the US, 
being offered, you've had this experience being offered an indigestion pill while I was eating. And, um, <laughs> and they don't exist in Britain. I don't think they exist in Australia, do they? Or they're like some specialist thing. If you had some like medical problem yeah. with indigestion. No, but they sell them. Well, I lived in America for about 10 years. And yeah, you can buy them over the counter in packs of 500. All right. They're these massive, it's a massive jar that's probably, it looks like um, like a shake and bake pancake mix jar, uh, uh, <laughs> bottle. It looks like that. And there's 500 of these things in there. So rather than, hey, maybe you don't want to eat three hot dogs with mustard and chilli sauce, it's like, eat your three hot dogs, but between each one, neck some of these and it'll be all right. And that's the thing you want to say to people, right? I remember when I was offered this indigestion pill in this really pompous British way, I said, oh, no, but you don't want to get rid of your feeling of indigestion. Indigestion is a meaningful signal, right? Indigestion is telling your body that you're eating too fast, right? You need to listen to the signal and slow down. And in a similar way, of course, I'm not comparing depression and digestion. Indigestion is uncomfortable. Depression is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. But depression is a signal, right? It's telling us something. It's telling us something has gone wrong. And instead of trying to just uh, pathologize the signal by saying either it's just a problem in your brain or that you're just weak or crazy or whatever bullshit people say, what we need to do is listen to that signal. What is it telling us, right? And so I was thinking about this in very practical ways about solutions. One of the heroes of my book is this totally amazing man called Dr. Sam Everington, who acted on this insight, right? So Sam is a GP in East London, where I lived for a long time, a poor part of East London. And Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him with just crippling depression and anxiety. And like me, he thinks there is some role for chemical antidepressants, but he could also see, firstly, most of the people he was giving them to did become depressed again. And secondly, they were depressed for perfectly good reasons, like, for example, loneliness. So Sam decided to, to try an experiment. One day, a woman came to see him called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know pretty well later. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. Sam said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is come and turn out a couple of times a week. We'll meet a dog shit alley. I'm going to come too because I've been quite anxious. We're going to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people. And we're going to find something to do together. It's called social prescribing, prescribing something to take part in a group. The first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety, right? She had barely left her house in years. But the group started talking and they're like, what can we do together? And they thought, actually, we could make dog shit alley into a garden, right? So they started to teach themselves gardening. In a city, East London people like me, they knew nothing about gardening, right? They started to read books, they started to look on YouTube, and then they started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. And even more than that, though, they started to form a tribe. They started to form a group. They started to care about each other. They started to look at, one of them didn't turn up. They go, and look, are you okay? They started to solve each other's problems because that's what we do when we're a tribe, right? And the way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a really similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for a really obvious reason, right? It was dealing with some of the reasons why these people were depressed and anxious in the first place. And this is something I saw all over the world, from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco. The best solutions to depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the reasons why we feel so shit in the first place. It's an extraordinary point. I remember the doctor that first diagnosed me, He, the guy that first put me on meds, he was very, very clear to point out, look, you know, the meds, like say you're a sports car, 
the meds are one wheel of the sports car. Sports car needs four wheels, five wheels if you count the steering wheel. The meds are one wheel, all right? It's not like these are going to take everything away. You've got to do the other things, diet and exercise, you know, doing something meaningful, making sure you move your body, you know, having something to do and looking after your sleep. Things, All those sorts of other things have to come into it. You can't just take the drug and expect it to get better. I should just, like, point out, like, we're not let's, – let's get some boundaries and definitions about what we're talking about here um, – we're talking. We're not talking about complex mental health issues such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or things like that. We're talking about anxiety and depression, the the kind of fairly uh, widely experienced in our community, um, fairly widely experienced issues that people are dealing with. Not the stuff that really kind of messes with your perception of reality, right? There's slightly more complicated points we made about that, which is so. There's with all mental health problems. There's three kinds of cause, right? There's biological causes like your genes, other physical things that happen. There's psychological causes, which is how you think about yourself, your place in the world. And then there's social causes, which are things like loneliness, you know, the way we live together, right? And with all mental health problems, all three of those play out to some degree. But obviously, it's massively varying, right? So there's obviously, let's think about something like dementia, right? Dementia has an obviously an extremely heavy biological component. It is, in fact, a physical degeneration of your brain, right? But even with dementia... If you have very strong social connections, if you speak another language, if you have um, a higher level of positivity, dementia develops much more slowly, right? There's lots of good research on this. So even something that's so obviously heavily biological as dementia has these really significant psychological and social elements. So let's think about schizophrenia, right? Schizophrenia has a hugely heavy biological component, obviously, right? And there's really good research on this. But with schizophrenia, loneliness makes schizophrenia worse and Actually, if you look at the seven factors that I write about in Lost Connections, many of them would make even something as heavily biological as schizophrenia worse. Now, that's not to say these are not the main drivers of schizophrenia, but, but it helps you to understand that there's something playing out with all these things. And it used to be thought there were two kinds of depression, right? Uh, they used to, uh, the terms they used to use were, um, they used to think there was endogenous depression, which is like, so there's just something gone wrong in your brain. And this was something called exogenous depression, which is reaction to bad things happening in your life. But actually, when this was studied more, what they found is when they looked, they looked at groups of people who've been diagnosed with these different kinds of depression, and they actually found they'd all had the same amount of bad shit happening to them, right? So actually, it, there's still a debate about this, but if there is any what's called purely endogenous depression, so it's just something going on in your brain, that's like a negligibly tiny amount, if it exists at all, and experts are divided on this, but they pretty much agree if it exists... It's a really, really small number of people. Most of what's going on are these these, these wider factors. Although, of course, biology plays a really important role. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad we I'm glad we saw it. I wouldn't want to give people the wrong idea um, that you know if you are experiencing complex mental health issues that even though we what we talked about uh, just you know a few minutes ago, like you need to get to a doctor. Um, gardening may be good. But you need to get to a doctor. It's <laughs> interesting to me, actually, and I'm, I'm, no one's been able to explain this to me, but I think it's really interesting. Australians, the whole world of Australian psychiatry is much better at explaining these complex... It's interesting. What your doctor told you would be surprising in the United States and is not at all surprising in Australia. Um, I was speaking to... I was in Australia a few months ago and I was speaking to... A bit more than that now. Uh, in September, I think. And... Um, I was speaking to some people, child psychiatrists who work on children who've been diagnosed with attention problems. And again, they had a 
much more sophisticated understanding of the complex causes, the mixture of causes. So I think Australia, it, I mean, everywhere in the world, I would urge people to go to their doctor if they have mental health problems. But I think particularly in Australia, there's a more sophisticated understanding. There's a lot that still needs to change in Australia and a lot more that still needs to be done. And it's also worth saying the solutions don't just lie in the medical system, right? And so think about car accidents, right? Yeah. Biggest source of death in our societies. Obviously, when people are mangled in car wrecks, they go to the emergency room and they get really good treatment and those doctors are heroes, right? And the nurse is there. But most of what we do to deal with that problem, we don't deal with in the emergency room. We have driving tests and seatbelts and airbags and we arrest speeders and we arrest people who drive when they're drunk, right? Yeah, yeah. Because driving is a social thing, we have social solutions to deal with it, right? And partly what I argue in my book, Lost Connections, I think the evidence is really clear, is depression is like that. There are lots of factors in the way we're working that are driving up depression. For example, the way people spend most of their time at work, there's a lot of evidence I can talk about that more if you want. That's something we can deal with collectively together. So I don't think it's just about, obviously, when it gets to the point that someone is so acutely depressed, of course, then they should seek medical help. But we should also be changing the society so that in very practical ways, that based on the science that I've seen people do in different countries, so they don't, we don't get to the point where so many people feel like shit in the first place, right? There's loads of things we could have done years ago that would have meant that loads of people who are depressed now wouldn't have been if we, if, it, if, if we were living in a slightly different way. You mentioned a woman before, one of the people you met who stayed and, you know, didn't leave her house for a long time and, um, mm. you know, was, you know, and, and this is something that, you know, I'm sure people can relate to because you write about it and I'd like you to kind of explain upon it, um, the idea of settling into the pain, which I certainly, you know, as someone who would often not leave the house for, you know, th three days at a time, I, I certainly know about it. Like it's easier to stay inside and it's easier to define myself, you know, by, I don't know, I'm safe as long as I don't go out the front door. But, you know, kind of not understanding. You'll have to excuse. That's that's my dog, Frank, barking at the magpies who are just getting up this morning. <laughs> Um, um, the idea of people that maybe don't want to go and seek help because, uh, oh, no, things are just fine as long as I don't leave the house. or No, think it starts worse than that. Things are fine as long as I don't see this particular person or relative. Things are fine as long as I don't see that person at work. Things are fine as long as I don't go to work. Things are fine as long as I don't leave the house. Oops-a-daisy, then you're fucked. You know, it just kind of escalates. But people settle into that. And, and you talk a lot about that, which I, I was really interested in. I was wondering if you might be able to expand upon that a little. There was someone I... You've gone to a really important um, question. There was someone I, I went to interview. It really helped me to think about this differently. And it really challenged something in me, actually. So he's a guy called um, Dr. Derek Summerfield. He's a South African psychiatrist. And I went to interview him. And Derek happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they introduced chemical antidepressants in Cambodia for the first time for the people there. And the local Cambodian doctors were like, well, what are they? What are antidepressants? So he explained. And they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? Thought they were going to talk about some kind of like herbal remedy, right? Like St. John's wort or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. A landmine left over by the American invasion of Southeast Asia. And so they gave him an artificial leg and he went back to work in the rice fields after a little while, right? But obviously, I'm guessing it's pretty traumatic to go back and work in the field where you got blown up. And Apparently, it's very painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. The guy started to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed, didn't want to leave, wanted to just be alone, like you're describing, shut away. It's classic depression, right? So they said to Derek, well, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And Derek said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. 
they listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense, right? It had causes. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was fucking him up. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Derek, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that it's an individual problem primarily in the person's brain, that sounds like a, a bad joke, right? I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the world, like we were saying before, the World Health Organization, has been telling us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love, help and support to get those needs met. Think about it that way. All those years that I had been depressed, I thought of it as a personal failing, as a problem with me either a problem in my biology or a failure in my character or that I was doing something wrong, right? And I remember after I spoke to Derek, going and sitting down, I actually met him in a pub and I remember just him leaving and just sitting in this pub and thinking, oh, I'm actually, this is a, in a sense, that the, the main thing I would want to say to depressed and anxious people in the position that you're in is your pain makes sense, right? You feel these ways for a reason, I want to hear what those reasons are. We'll figure them out together because usually when you're depressed, it's not clear to you what those, what those causes are. And together we'll find solutions, right? And some of those things can't be solved by isolated individuals and their friends. Some of them have to be solved at a social level, but a lot, some of them can be solved. So you've got different levels of solutions, right? But to me, that's, that's a very different way of framing the whole problem, right? It's a very different way of thinking about it. So in a way, the last third of my book, Lost Connections, is where I'm asking, okay, what's the cow for the things that are making us feel like shit, Right. The we, it's probably a good time we talk about this because you mentioned antidepressants and you know that that's an interesting case study. You know, a country that's never had them and then suddenly somewhere in a boardroom, some pharmacy company goes, "There's a market we haven't expanded into yet. Send some people down there and tell the doctors why they need us." Um, <laughs> you know, when they haven't, you know, before that, which is which is kind of interesting. But it is a tricky subject. But I think it's important for us to talk about it uh, for, you know, as you know, I mentioned to you, but, you know, and people that listen to the show know I've been on meds, I've been off meds, I've been on apparently all of the meds, uh, <laughs> I was on antipsychotics for a while, uh, and now I'm off meds at the moment. And I've found that very, very helpful. I found those meds to be really useful to give me the support structures that I needed to help my brain learn to move in different ways. And then slowly, slowly, the problems that I was taking the meds for became low enough that they dipped below the side effects of those meds. And so that's when me and my doctors decided, let's let's start going off. And it took about nine months. So I, I tell people every day, and I know you do too, do not stop taking your meds without talking to your doctor. I do not do it. It took it took a long time for me to get better. I wouldn't have got it better without them. That's the promise. Um, but uh, where where are you on meds, Johan? So I think you, you're speaking at it at the right level of complexity, right? Which is we have to acknowledge uh, a complex range of things. So, and I'm not talking about antipsychotics, I'm talking about chemical antidepressants. Yeah, antipsychotics are a thing, and I haven't looked into a great deal of detail. My instinct is that you, you're right. I haven't looked into that in great detail, like I have with antidepressants. So I guess there's a few things that, to me, tell you the essential core of the argument about antidepressants, right, chemical antidepressants. First is, depression is generally measured 
by something called the Hamilton scale. Right? I've always felt really sorry for whoever Hamilton was that really remember him by Hamilton. <laughs> Miserable we all are. Anyway, um, the Hamilton scale, to give you a sense of it, goes from one where you would be dancing around in ecstasy, maybe on ecstasy, to 51 where you would be acutely suicidal, right? And um, to give you a sense of movement on the Hamilton scale, if you improve your sleep patterns, you'll gain six points on the Hamilton scale. And if your sleep patterns really deteriorate, like when you have a baby, you'll go six points the other way on average, right? So a great guy called Professor Irving Kirsch, who's the leading expert at Harvard Medical School, got hold of all the studies that look at chemical antidepressants, including the ones the drug companies didn't put in the public domain, didn't publish, right? And what that showed, what he, what he discovered was, on average, over time, chemical antidepressants will move you 1.8 points on the Hamilton scale, right? It's about a third of what improving your sleep patterns are. It's important to say a few things. Firstly, that's an average. Some people will get much more, like I initially got much more. Some people will get much less. Over time, I got less. Um, it's also worth saying 1.8 points ain't nothing, right? Like if you're acutely suicidal, 1.8 points could be the thing that takes you down off the ledge. It's equally worth saying 1.8 points to Hamilton scale on average is not solving the problem for most people. And we can see that around us, right? For the last 30 years, every year in Australia, there's been a massive increase in antidepressant prescription. And every year, depression has continued to rise. Now, it's not rising because of the antidepressants. The antidepressants are taking the edge off a bit. But there's something missing in that picture, right? What's missing in that picture is what's actually causing depression and anxiety and how we can actually solve those causes, right? So that's one thing I think is worth knowing. The other thing is, the other most important piece of research, in fact, the single most important piece of research, I think, on chemical antidepressants is something called the STAR-D trial. Really simple. Scientists follow people who go to the doctor saying, I'm depressed and I need help. And they follow them over a long period of time to see who gets better, right? And what they found is most people given chemical antidepressants do become depressed again, right? Doesn't mean they get no help, but it does mean, you know, for most people, it's not enough, right, to lift them over the threshold. So again, I think this is kind of obvious. I'm surprised that some people find these things controversial because they're just so obvious, right? I mean, you look around you, more, more, there are loads more people depressed. But I also think you, you alluded to a really important thing, which is discussed less, which is so there's this real benefit, which is smaller than you'd think, but real, and for some people, life-saving. Um, and there's really horrendous side effects for a lot of people. So I put on huge amount of weight, like 70% of men who take these drugs affected my sexual functioning, not all the time, but some of the time, and made me sleep a huge amount. So I think we have to have a complex discussion. There is some benefit for some people. It doesn't solve the problem for most people, sadly, uh, because it doesn't deal with the actual reasons why people are depressed. And there are big side effects that for some people will outweigh even the modest positive effects. So I think that's the kind of um, complex picture. You're absolutely right to say anyone who wants to cut back, you should never cut back abruptly. You can have really severe withdrawal effects and you can lose 1.8 points on a Hamilton scale on average, which could be really awful for you. But equally, we have to have a much more sophisticated conversation about depression than are you in favour of drugs or are you against drugs, right? Because we've been having that argument for 30 years and it's not dealt with the actual heart of the problem, which is why do so many people feel like shit? What can we actually do to stop this rising and in fact to reverse this this trend? And really those to me are the most important questions. Uh, it's it's similar and you know it might be the way of like, when it comes to broken legs, are you a fan of putting the leg in a cast or are you a fan of just wobbling around? Like you're probably gonna wanna put it in a cast, you know? <laughs> like So if that's a really, you know, if in an acute situation, in my opinion, you're gonna need something to help you. It depends what you mean by an acute situation, doesn't it? I think you're right that, I mean, 
I don't know enough about the science of plaster casts, but I'm pretty sure like 100% of people get helped by plaster casts. Yeah. I don't think there are any side effects. Maybe some people are allergic to plaster or something. Yeah. So I think that analogy slightly overstates it because there are everyone gets helped by plaster casts and there's no side effects. Well, your, your mobility is reduced. You may not be able to work. It might affect your sexual function. You might put on weight because uh, you can't move around as much as you used to. Might be some plaster cast fetishists out there who are like, "Hey, man, everyone's got their something, Johan." <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think I, I think. Um, there's a role for chemical interventions. There are real biological components to all mental health problems. There's a role for chemical interventions. Uh, and sometimes they can be life-saving. Other times they can be actively harmful. It, we need to have a complex approach to it. We need to be honest with people about the complexity. The thing I object to is not the drugs, right? And like I say, they've got some value. It's limited, but it's real. The thing I object to is the story that's often given with the drugs. Think about what my doctor told me. My doctor told me, you have this problem because of a problem in your brain. And what that does is it cuts people off from understanding the, the real complexity of the problem and from finding real solutions, right? So I'll give you an example in my own case. I find it a bit difficult to talk about, but I've been trying to make myself do it in interviews. So there's this thing that I discovered, uh, I learned about, obviously I didn't make the scientific discovery, it's amazing scientists did this, but I learned about for the book. It was quite difficult. And it was like, okay, I'll tell you the story of how it was discovered. And for a minute, you're going to think, why is he telling me this? It's got nothing to do with depression, but it actually led to this incredible breakthrough in depression that I think we can only understand if we understand how it was discovered. So in the mid-1980s, a doctor called Dr. Vincent Felitti, who I got to know later, in San Diego, in California, was given a quite difficult task. He was approached by Kaiser Permanente, who were the big not-for-profit medical provider in California, and they said, look, we've got a really big problem here. Every year, obesity was getting worse. And they were trying all sorts of things like giving people diet plans and nothing was making a bit of difference. And it was causing all, it was costing them a fortune. Obviously, it's terrible for people's health. So they gave him quite a big budget. He said, go away and figure out what would genuinely solve this problem, right? So he goes away and he starts to work with 250 severely obese people. People who weighed more than 400 pounds, so very severe obesity. People who tried every other kind of solution, nothing had worked. And he's interviewing these people. And one day he has what seems like it actually is in some ways a really stupid idea. He asked himself, what would happen if really obese people literally just stopped eating and I gave them like vitamin shots so they didn't get like scurvy or whatever, would they just burn through the fat stores in their bodies and start to lose weight? So obviously with a shitload of medical supervision, they started to do this. And in, crazily, in one sense, it appeared to work. So there's a woman who I'm going to call Susan, that's not her real name, it's to protect her medical confidentiality, who went down from being more than 400 pounds to 138 pounds. It's like, whoa everyone's celebrating, they can't believe it, it's happy days, right? And then something happened that no one expected. One day, Susan cracked, went to KFC, starts obsessively eating, and quite soon she's back, not quite where she was, but a dangerous way, right? And Dr. Felitti calls her in and he's like, Susan, what happened? And she looks down, she's like, I don't know, I don't know. So it's asking her questions, he says, well, tell me about the day you cracked, did anything happen that day? It didn't happen on other days. It turned out something had happened that day, something actually that had never happened to Susan. She'd been in a bar and a man had hit on her, not in like an awful predatory way, in quite a nice way, but she felt really freaked out and she'd gone off to KFC or whatever it was. And that's when Dr. Felitti asked, I think it was the next session he asked her, something, again, it never occurred to him to ask her. He said, when did you start to put on weight? In her case, it was, um, I think it was when she was 11. And he said, well, did anything happen when you were 11? That didn't happen when you were nine, didn't happen when you were 14, anything that, that year. 
And again, she looked down and she said, yeah, that's when my grandfather started raping me. Dr. Felitti began to interview everyone in the program. And he discovered that 55% of them had put on their extreme weight in the aftermath of being sexually abused, right? Now, that is so much higher than the general population. It's like, there's something going on here, but what could it be? And Susan explained it to him. She said, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I need to be. Dr. Fetty realized this thing that seems so irrational and obviously is really bad for your health, obesity, was for these people actually performing a really important function. It was protecting them from sexual attention, right? And so Dr. Felitti started to think about this and he's like, okay, but this is a small group. He's making a big claim. He's like, this is really weird. And it, it goes to, he decides he needs to do a much bigger study drawing big conclusions. So he goes to the Center for Disease Control, who is one of the biggest bodies that fund medical research in the whole world. And he gets a massive grant to do a really big study. Everyone who came for healthcare to Kaiser Permanente for a whole year in San Diego, didn't matter where they came with headache, broken leg, schizophrenia, anything, was given two questionnaires. First questionnaire said, did you have any of these problems when you were a kid? Things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, extreme cruelty, neglect. And then it asked, have you had any of these problems as an adult? And at first it was just going to say obesity, and at the last minute they added a load of other stuff. Suicide attempts, depression, addiction. And when the figures were added up, at first the Centre for Disease Control thought there'd, there'd been some mistake. Because for every, the figures were just so crazy. For every category of childhood trauma that you experienced, you were two to four times more likely to become depressed or addicted. But when you got into the multiple figures, it was like insane. If you had experienced six of those categories of childhood trauma, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide and 4,600% more likely to have an addiction problem. I mean, that's just injecting drug addiction problem. You don't get figures like that very often in science, right? Yeah. The way Dr. Robert Ander, who's one of the scientists who worked on it, said, put it to me was, it made him realize he had to stop. When you see someone who's doing something that seems so irrational, like obesity or addiction or depression, you need to stop asking what's wrong with you and start asking what happened to you, right? But I remember when I went to go and see Dr. Felitti first time in San Diego, right? So if you met him, you'd really like him, right? He's a lovely good, decent man who's done this amazing work. I felt unbelievably angry when I was talking to him. And I remember actually leaving and being like shaking with anger. I was like, why am I so angry with this like lovely old man who's done this amazing heroic work? And it made me realize something about why I had been so committed to this. So I was told this story, oh, it's just a problem in your brain. And I'm not thick, right? At some level I knew it can't be that this is just a problem in people's brains because why would it be rising so much? So our brains haven't evolved in the last 30 years, right? But So when I was a child, I had um, I'd experienced some very extreme acts from uh, an adult in my life. And I didn't want to think about that. I didn't want to... I didn't want to think that had any power over me now. I don't want to think about it at all. But one of the reasons I'm really glad I thought about it is because of what Dr. Felitti discovered next. And I think it goes exactly to the heart of what we're talking about, about the problem with telling this only a biological story. So if people had indicated on this form that they'd experienced some form of childhood trauma, their GP was told, don't call them in, but next time they come in with a problem, say to them something like this, they were given a little script, and it's saying like, I see that you indicated on this form that you were sexually abused or whatever the nature of the abuse was. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened. Would you like to talk about it? And 40% of people said, no, don't want to talk about it. But 60% of people did want to talk about it. And they wanted to talk about it on average for five minutes. 
uh, and then it was randomly assigned. Some of them were told, you can go see a therapist and talk about it more if you want. And what was incredible was just those five minutes of an authority figure saying, I'm really sorry, this should never happen to you. That alone led to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety. And the people who referred to a therapist had an even bigger fall. And, and this fits with a whole bigger thing that we know, which is it's not the trauma that destroys you. It's the shame about the trauma. And giving people a safe space to talk about that trauma and release their shame is an antidepressant. I think anything that, that anything that reduces depression should be regarded as an antidepressant. Think about the principle of the cow, right? For some people, that will be drugs. But there needs to be a much bigger menu of options, right? And what that... I don't want to be simplistic about this. Even if my doctor had told me a more complex story, I'm not sure I would have been able to take it on at that time. But by telling people misleadingly simplistic stories about their pain, we cut them off from a deeper understanding of what's really going on. And that can cut them off from finding more meaningful solutions. So think about someone who's been sexually abused and is, has real problems coping in the world as a result. Saying to them, oh, you've just got a problem in your brain and the solution is just to drug yourself, that is not helpful. Right now, they may get some benefit from chemical antidepressants and there's a case in some instances of doing that. But you can see what I mean, can't you? This too yeah. reductive a way of thinking. Well, Johan, I've got to say thank you very much for, for sharing for sharing mm. that personal insight. You know, it's always interesting to read work like this, but when it comes from a, a place of the author deeply wanting to know their own answers, I don't know, I, I guess I feel I, I, I relate to it. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We've talked a bit about meds. Let's talk about some of the other ways that you discovered helped people. We've, we've already talked about the cow. In the book, you say, essentially, you're like, as humans, we have needs. Uh, we need to be, we need to belong. We need to feel that we're good at stuff. We need to feel valued by others. We need to feel secure about our future. We need to feel that our life and work has meaning. You take those five things away, it's pretty easy to see how someone can slip off the edge, all right? You take one of those five things away, you can see, how, it's pretty easy to see how things can get tricky quickly. People are listening, people have, they may have realized, okay, I'm in, Johan, I relate here and here and here and here. What next? What's a way that we can feel we belong, Johan? Let me give you, let me give you a really concrete example. So I noticed that loads of the people I know who are depressed and anxious, their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. So I started to think, well, is how typical of the people I know? So I looked, there's a big study done by Gallup, the opinion poll company, including in Australia, a massive study 
looking at how do people in the Western world feel about work. And what they found was 13% of us, 1-3%, like our jobs most of the time, right? 63% of what they called sleepworking, you don't like it, you don't hate it, you're just kind of getting through the day. And 24% of people fucking hate and fear their jobs, right? It's quite struck by that. 87% of people don't like the thing they're doing most of the time. And that thing is actually spreading over more and more of the day, right? The average British person now answers their work, first work email at 7.43 a.m. and clocks off at 7.15 p.m., right? So I start to think, well, could this have some effect on our mental health that we don't like the thing we're doing most of the time? And what can we do about that? So I, I started to look into this and I discovered that an incredible Australian, I think perhaps the greatest living Australian, a man called Professor Michael Marmot had, except for Kylie, uh, had discovered an incredibly important, and maybe um, the guy who plays um, Paul Robinson in Neighbours, but um, had discovered this incredibly important breakthrough in about what causes depression at work, right? So he did this in the 70s, I can tell you how if you want, but I'll just say the heart of it. He discovered, it's not the only thing, but the most, the biggest factor that causes depression at work is if you go to work tomorrow and you have low or no control over your work, you are much more likely to become depressed and anxious, right? It's significant figures. And I was thinking about this, and of course it totally fits with, we need to feel we're doing something meaningful with our lives, right? And if you're controlled, you can't create meaning out of your work, right? And that's so obvious you don't need to explain it. But I was listening to that, and at first I actually misunderstood what all this meant, right? So I thought the implication of what Professor Marmot, I remember talking to him about this, I thought the implication of what Professor Marmot was saying was, okay, you've got this 13% of elite people at the top who get to have nice, meaningful jobs, and then you've got everyone else. And I thought about my family, you know, my brother is an Uber driver. My, my grandmother's job was to clean toilets. My, my dad was a bus driver. I'm like, well, wait a minute, are you saying they're all condemned to this shit life? And he said, no, Johan, you don't understand. It's not the work that makes you depressed. It's being controlled at work, right? And it turns out there's an antidepressant for that. And if I explain it at first, some of your listeners are going to think I'm saying you should go and do this now. And they're going to think I can't go and do that. And it's true. As our society works at the moment, most of us can't do this. This is an argument for a bigger change that I'll explain. So I went to I went and interviewed this woman in Baltimore called Meredith Keogh, uh, who's a little bit younger than me. And Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night and just sick with anxiety, right? And she had an office job. As she would tell you, it wasn't the worst office job in the world, right? She wasn't being bullied or harassed or anything. But it was pretty monotonous. And she just couldn't bear the thought this was going to be the next, like, 40 years of her life until she retired. So one day with her husband, Josh, Meredith did this quite bold thing. Josh had worked in bike stores in Baltimore since he was a teenager. And as you can imagine, especially in the US, working in a bike store is pretty controlled. You don't make you don't have any decisions of your own. It's pretty insecure. You don't even have sick pay or anything like that. It's a pretty insecure way of living. And one day, Josh and his um, colleagues were in their bike store. And they said to themselves, what? What does our boss actually do? And they were like, looking at him. He wasn't a particularly, they didn't hate him. He wasn't an evil boss. But they were like, we seem to fix all the bikes. And he seems to make all the money. What would happen if we did this differently? So they decided to open a bike store of their own that works on a different principle. So the place where they'd worked before was like, most of your listeners will work in a place. It was a corporation, right? Very recent human invention, the corporation. So you know how it works. It's structured like an army. You've got the boss at the top. Uh, and we all have to kind of obey the boss at the top. And sometimes the boss is nice and sometimes they're nasty. But, you know, if you don't obey them, you're out, right? Yeah. If you consistently obey them, you're out. Josh and his colleagues decided to have a bike store. It's called Baltimore Bicycle Works. It's works on a different principle. Much older American idea, actually. It's a democratic cooperative. So the way it works is they don't have a boss. They run the business together. They take the decisions together. In practice, they have a meeting once every three weeks, I think it is. And 
most of the time they agree, but not always. If they don't agree, they vote. They share the profits. They share out the good tasks and the shit tasks. So no one gets stuck with the shit tasks. And if someone has an idea, they can try and persuade the other people and make it work. And one of the things that was so interesting was sitting, spending time in Baltimore Bicycle Works, talking to the people there. How many of them talked about how they had been depressed and anxious in their previous way of working, but were not depressed and anxious now, which totally fits with what Professor Marmot found about control, right? And it's like it's not like they quit their jobs fixing bikes and went to become like Beyonce's backing singers, right? They fixed bikes before, they fixed bikes now. What changed? Now they've got control over their work. Imagine how many people you know who are depressed and anxious now who if they knew that tomorrow they were going into a workplace that they controlled with their colleagues, where everyone was the boss, where they were the boss together, where if there has to be a boss, he's elected by them and accountable to them, where no one got stuck with all the shit tasks all the time, and where you had agency and control over your work, that's a very different way of spending most of your waking hours than the way most of us live now, right? Um, And this isn't some, like, wacky idea. Cornell University found democratic businesses are already 10,000 of them in the United States. Democratic businesses grow on average four times faster than non-democratic businesses for obvious reasons, right? People are really fucking committed to them. They really want them to succeed. They People bring all their energy to it because it's not deadening and awful. So that's one example of, now that's a big social change, right? But it's a less big social change than a lot of the things we've lived through, right? Uh, I'm gay. I'm 40. I didn't even hear the concept of gay marriage till I was 20 years old. Right. The women listening to this don't need me to explain, but mansplain this to them. But my grandmothers weren't even allowed to have bank accounts when they got married. Right. There are big changes that happen all the time when people band together and and fight for them. So I I think what we have to do is get to the heart of why so many of us are finding life so hard. And at the moment, the trend is for work becoming more controlled. You know, you think about not just people who live in Amazon, working in Amazon warehouses, but like just work being over-monitored, over-controlled, you know, constantly on email. Mm. We can reverse these trends. There's no reason why we should be organizing our societies so we are, most of us are spending most of our time in places that make us feel like shit, right? That yeah. does not have to be the case. I um, I was reading your book when I was, I was uh, shooting a show. I- even though I, I, do, I do this podcast, I have a, a few different jobs. And one of them is I host the uh, Australian version of The Bachelor. And we also do a show called Bachelor in Paradise, which we shoot in Fiji, where my wife is from. And so for a month or so, we're out in Fiji. I was reading your book and the way that it works there is a lot of the resorts are built on land that was owned by the village. And the deal is that you build a resort here, but you have to employ people from the village who live literally next door, all right? And I'm reading a book and, you know, you're covering these points of people need to feel they belong, they need to feel they're good at something, they need to feel their value, they need to know they have a future and they need to know their life has meaning. And every day I would watch at low tide, two adults and five kids walk out onto the reef with a net and the adults would show the boys, uh, you know, we can talk about the patriarchal notion of village life in Fiji on another podcast, but each day (laughs) the adults would show the children, this is how we fish. And they would spend about an hour out there between the just coming into the low tide and just coming out of the low tide when they could walk on the reef. And they would go home. And I'm thinking, look at that. Look at these little eight-year-old kids. Do they feel they belong? Absolutely. They're eight. And as far as they're concerned, they've helped feed their village tonight. Do they feel they're good at something? Yeah, they've had two adults go, good on you, mate. Do they feel they're valued? Absolutely. Do they feel they have a future? They know how to feed themselves. 
everything will be fine because they know how to feed themselves. Do they feel their life have meaning? Yes, they do. Now, Johan, we can't all live in a village in Fiji because it doesn't quite work at scale. There's maybe only about 100, I don't know how close to Dunbar's number it is, but it's close, 140, maybe 200 people in each village. But their needs are being met. The needs that you describe are being met. And it's a 21st century example of the society that you described in the start of our conversation that we've you know, moved away from. Besides creating a collective workspace, um, between now and when we, when we do that, what are some steps that, that we can take to get our needs met, to begin to meet those human needs, the needs for the deep connection, the needs for the things that, as you say, really matter in life? I want to um, answer that in a second, but just in relation to that story, which I love, um, you just said about Fiji. You know, you compare that to our kids, right? So in Britain... There was a study that found now the average British child spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner, because by law, a maximum security prisoner has to have 70 minutes a day outside. So we have imprisoned our children worse than we imprison our rapists and murderers, right? And we're surprised that they're showing things like epidemic. And you think about, for example, there's a woman called um, George, Professor Jill Twenge, who I interviewed, who has shown Today, the average teenage girl in the United States shows the same levels of anxiety as the average mental patient did in the 1950s, right? Literally institutionalized mental patient. I think we've created a, a, an environment that doesn't meet our needs as adults, but I think it particularly doesn't meet our, the needs of children, right? It's n- there's never been a society that tried to raise children in this deeply weird, isolated way where they're kept indoors. It's terrible for them. In terms of what we can do, I mean, I go through, lo- obviously, the last third of the book is the attempt to answer that question, but... Can I give you one example of, I think I've actually seen how we can be like that village in Fiji, right? I've seen it happen in front of me. And it happened in an unlikely place. I have to tell you the story of how it happened because I think it tells us a lot of lessons. So in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous council estate in Berlin, uh, you say council estate in Australia, don't you? Not housing. Oh, it's like housing, co- housing commission. It's the, the housing that the government provides to people who can't afford to, to have a house. Let's call it a housing commission. I couldn't remember the phrase in Australia. So on a big anonymous housing commission in Berlin, uh, a woman called Nuria Changis climbed out of her wheelchair and put a sign in her window. She was on the ground floor. The sign said something like, I got my notice saying I'm going to be evicted next week, next Thursday. So on Wednesday night, I'm going to kill myself. Now, this housing commission, it's a slightly weird place. It's called Cotty. It's in the middle of, it's in West Berlin. And it was kind of, it had been a very poor area the whole time the wall was up. And basically only three groups of people had lived there. There were recent Muslim immigrants like this woman, Nuria. There were punk squatters and there were gay men. And as you can imagine, these three groups looked at each other with a bit of incomprehension. But it was a big, like, anonymous place. No one really knew anyone. So people start walking past Nuria's window on this housing commission and they, they, no one knows her. So people start to knock on her door and they say, are you all right? And at first, Nuria said, fuck you, I don't want any help and shut the door in their face. But in this housing commission, lots of people were pissed off because all of them had seen their rents go up and up and lots of people were being evicted. And a lot of people thought, well, it's her now, but it's going to be me next, right? So one of them, you might remember, this is the, this is the summer that the Arab Spring was happening, all these images from Egypt. One of them looked at this and had an idea, right? There's a big thoroughfare that goes through this housing commission, Cotty, into the centre of Berlin. And one of them said, you know, if we just blocked the road on Saturday and we protest and we wheel Nuria out, They'll probably be a bit fuss in the media. They'll come and cover it. They'll probably let us stay. We might even get a bit of pressure to keep our rents down. So they decided to do it. People just stand outside a flat. They start doing, start planning it, right? Gets to Saturday. They block the road. Nuria was like, well, I'm going to kill myself anyway. I might as well let them wheel me into the middle of the road. They wheel her out. 
and the media does come and they interview Nuria who's a bit puzzled to be interviewed uh, and the people who live there talk and explain how they're pissed off and then it gets to the end of the day and the police say okay you've had your fun take it down but of course the people who live there you know they're like well but you haven't told Nuria she gets to stay and actually what we want is a rent freeze for our whole housing commission. So when we've got that, then we'll take this barricade down. But obviously they knew the minute they left this barricade, the police would just take it down and that would be that, right? So one of my favorite people at Cotty, a woman called Tanya Gartner, who's one of the punk squatters, she, um, Tanya wears these tiny miniskirts, even in Berlin winter, she's quite hardcore. Tanya ha- went up to a flat and she had a klaxon, you know, those things that make really loud noises at soccer matches. She brought it down and she said, okay, everyone, I've got a plan. What we're going to do is we're going to drop a timetable to man this barricade 24 hours a day till we get what we want. If the police come to take it down, let off the klaxon, we'll all come down and stop them, right? So people start signing up to man this barricade, people who would never have met, right? We don't know each other. Um, so Tanya, in her tiny little miniskirt, got paired with Nuria, who's a very religious Muslim who wears a full hijab, right? And they got, I'm trying to remember, I think they got the Tuesday night shift, if I remember right. And so they sit there in the cold, right? It's good Berlin nights, cold. And they're like, we've got nothing to talk about. It's really awkward. It's really embarrassing. Tiny would just tap away on her laptop. As the weeks went on, they started chatting. They discovered they had something in- incredibly powerful in common. Um, Nuria started to talk about when she'd first come to Berlin. She told Tanya something she'd actually never told anyone in Germany. So she'd come when she was 16 years old with her two young children from a village in Turkey. And she was meant to earn enough money for her husband to send back home for her husband to come and join them, right? So she's working every hour she can, looking after her kids. And after she'd been there for a year and a half, she got word from home that her husband had died. She'd always told people in Germany her husband died of a heart attack. Sitting there in the cold in Cotty, she told Tanya the truth, which is that he died of tuberculosis, which was seen as like a shameful disease of poverty. That's when Tanya told Nuria something she almost never talked about. Tanya had herself come to Cotty when she was 15. She'd been thrown out by a middle-class family because she loved punk so much. She'd come and she'd started living at a punk squat. She actually got pregnant uh, when she was 16. They both realised they'd been alone with children in this place they didn't understand. They realised they had so much in common. This was happening with loads of these pairings in Cotty. One day, it's funny, uh, directly opposite this this housing commission, there's um, there's a, a gay club called Zudblock run by a man I love called Richard Stein, who is it's quite a hardcore gay club, to give you a sense of what they're like. The I've, previous look, place- Johan, I've, I've been to Berlin. It's one of my <laughs> favourite cities in the world. Uh, and let me tell you, it, it, it looked like gay Disneyland more so than San Francisco could ever be. <laughs> You're exactly right. I mean, the place that Rickard owned prior to this gay club was called Cafe Anal, which I think yeah. gives you some sense. Yeah. There you go. Like- when they opened this gay club, so this gay club but opened. it's fine. It's okay. We all, it's fine. We are all adults. It's why you had a problem. <laughs> it's just so German. I love it. <laughs> it's so German. When they when they opened this gay club, uh, gay bar and club, uh, two years before the protest, you know there were there's a lot of religious Muslims who live there. Uh, some people have been really pissed off. Some people actually smashed their windows. And when the protest began, Zudblock, this gay club, gave all their furniture. Uh, they to the protest, and after a while, they started saying, you know, you guys could have all your meetings. In, a, in our club, if you want, we'll give you free drinks, we'll give you free food. And even the lefties who lived at Cotty were like, you know, we're not going to get these very religious Muslims to come and have meetings underneath posters for like fisting night, right? It's not going to happen. It did happen. As one of the Muslim German women there said to me, we all realized we had to take these small steps to understand each other. After the protest had been going on for a year and the barricade had been manned 
24 hours a day for a year. One day, a guy arrived at the protest. He's called Tunkai. He was at the time he was in his early 50s. And when you meet Tunkai, it's clear he's got some kind of cognitive difficulties uh, and he'd been living homeless. But he's also got an amazing energy about him. He started offering to help and people really liked him. And by this point, they'd actually built a permanent structure in the middle of the street, right? It wasn't just a barricade anymore. It had a roof and everything. And after a while, they said to him, you know, you should come and live in this thing that we've built, right? We don't want you to be homeless. Come and live there. Everyone liked him. So Tunkai started to live there and he became a much loved part of the uh, Koti protest. And, and after he'd been there for nine months, one day the police came. They would come and inspect every now and then. And Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue. And he thought the police were arguing. So he went to hug one of the police officers to calm him down. And the police officer thought Tunkai was attacking him. So they arrested him. That was when it was discovered. Tunkai had been shut away in a psychiatric hospital for 20 years, often in a literal padded cell. He'd escaped one day, lived on the streets for a few months and found his way to Cotty. So they took him back to this psychiatric hospital, back to this padded cell, at which point the entire Cotty protest turned into a kind of free Tunkai movement, right? They descend on this psychiatric hospital at the other end of Berlin. And these psychiatrists are like, what is this? They've got, they've got this person they've had shut away for 20 years and suddenly there's these like very camp gay men, these women in hijabs and these punks demanding his release. But I remember Uli Hartmann, one of the protesters, said to them, but he doesn't belong with you. You don't love him. He belongs with us. We love him. Many things happened at Koti. Uh, they got Tunkai back. It took a little while. Um, they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They then launched a referendum initiative to keep rents down across the city. Um, they got the largest number of written signatures in the history of the city of Berlin. But the last time I saw Nuria, um, I remember she said to me, you know, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighborhood. That's great. I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by these incredible people all along and I never knew. And I would have never known, right? And I remember Tanya saying to me one time sitting with her outside Ziploc, she said to me, when you feel like shit and you're all alone, you think there's something wrong with you. But what we did is we came out of our corner crying and we started to fight. And we realized we were surrounded by people who felt the same way. And I think it's pretty clear from what I'm saying that I love these people in Cotty. I think they're amazing. But in one sense, they are not exceptional. They were random people, right? This hunger for reconnection is just below the surface in everyone around you, right? If you're listening to this on a train, there are people feeling that hunger all around you. You're listening to it on a street, in a park. This is, this is very close to the surface. You don't, this is not like explaining quantum physics to people, right? People get this absolutely intuitively when you explain it to them. And, and, and I can tell you about all the science, and obviously I learned a lot from the scientists, but in a way I think the most profound lessons I learned from my book, Lost Connections, were from the people in Cotty. Because, you know, think about how distressed these people were, right? Nuria was about to kill herself. Uh, Tunkai was shut away in an actual padded cell. Loads of the people there were terribly depressed and anxious. In the main, they did not need to be drugged. They needed to be together. They needed to be seen. They needed to have purpose. They needed to be valued and loved. And that to me is the heart of what we need to rediscover now. Now, obviously I go through lots of specific techniques people can do, lots of social changes. But most of the time when people ask me this, I just want to I remember that the Bosnian writer Alexander Heyman said, home is where people notice when you're not there. By that standard, a lot of us are homeless, right? Or have a very small home, a very small sense of home, right? And 
These are really primal, basic human things that we need. Right? There's never been humans before as we've tried to live like this, right? There are some good things about the way we live for sure, right? But there's a, this growing, and, and, and we haven't talked about Australia, but there's this, you know, Australia is off the scale. I mean, Australia has the highest level of chemical antidepressant use in the whole world per capita after Iceland. And there's like five people in Iceland and one of them is Bjork. So like, <laughs> you know, this, this is particularly an enormous crisis in Australia for reasons that, you know, I've spent a fair bit of time in Australia, but I don't feel I've quite cracked. Does that make sense? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely do. And I guess what I would love is if we, because we, we've, we've been talking for a little while and we've spoken a bit about some of the things that you discovered about the, and you know, you've told a great story about what happens to a community when they, when they feel they they belong, when they feel they're good at something. You know, we're we're good at protesting. We're, we're valued because I'm going to wake people up if the cops come. Uh, do we have a sense of future? I didn't before, but I have an idea of what a future could be. You know, frozen rent. Um, does what do I have meaning? Yeah, I mean to the people who are sleeping right now, knowing that I'm awake. We don't all have a housing protest. We don't all have that. What are some things that might be within the uh, the kind of like. Podcast audiences are interesting because they can at least afford a smartphone, all right, or at least afford an internet connection. So there is a a ceiling and a and a bottom to you know the kind of I guess the economic people that that can listen to this show. So within that, what are some moves that people could make? You, you mentioned, you know, I know you talk about it in the book, you know, and I high, highly recommend it. Uh, I particularly love the audiobook because, as you can hear, you know, Johan's a very um, emotive man and I, I love hearing it. You know, what's a simple thing that someone can do today to get one or two of these things kind of back into their life, back within their locus of control, their internal locus of control? I'll give you an example of Again, one of the difficult ones that I, difficult causes of depression anxiety that I learned about that, that has this really interesting solution that so everyone knows junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? There's equally strong evidence that a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick, right? For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit, right? It's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is the gist of what he said, right? There's equally... So, so the, I learned, weirdly, no one had actually um, scientifically investigated this until an incredible man called Professor Tim Kasser, who I interviewed a lot for my book. Professor Kasser showed two things. The more you think life is about money and status and showing off, as I say, whether it's on Instagram or whatever, the, the more you think life is about uh, gaining status and, and lording it over other people and having lots of money in the bank and valuing people because they're hot or whatever, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious, right? There's lots of reasons I can talk about them if you want. Um, he also showed as a society, we've become much more driven by these junk values, right? Become much more driven by worrying about how money and status and, and likes and all of that shit, right? And this is one of the key factors, this kind of move towards junk values. Think about, obviously, it's a bit cheap to say it, but Donald Trump is an extreme expression of those things, right? You can just see it, okay? He, a person who's obsessed with literally living in a gold tower, having a hot wife he appears to never speak to and is the most powerful man in the world and is as miserable as a, a person as I've ever seen, right? Because you just see that that way of living does not meet your needs. It doesn't actually make you happy, right? It's insatiable. But what's interesting is Professor Kasser pioneered this, this kind of um, or junk values diet, if you like. It's really, in a way, quite simple. And people could do this with their friends. So it was with a guy called um, Nathan Dungan. It was a really simple experiment. They got people to meet once a fortnight for four months, and at first, they what they did was they got it was initially it was um, teenagers and their parents. And the first thing they did was they said just make drop a list of everything you feel you've got to have, right? 
And of course, initially people say like housing and obvious things, but quite quickly the teenagers would say Nike sneakers or quite often the parents would say some expensive handbag or some expensive car or whatever shit, right? And initially they would just say, well, let's go through these things you feel you've got to have, right? How would your life be different if you had Nike sneakers or a Mercedes Benz, right? And quite quickly people would say, again, it's very close to the surface. They go, well, people would respect me, right? People would like me. It doesn't take long for you to think that through, right? Before they go, oh, wait, why do I think I want to be, why, why do I think that's the path to being liked, right? We're bombarded with these messages all the time that this is how you get to be liked. You know, more 18-month-old children recognize the McDonald's M than know their own surname, right? So we're bombarded with this from birth. But actually, this is not how you, we all know at some level, it's not how you make yourself happy. So at first, they would talk about the junk values and kind of take them apart. But then it was really simple. They would just meet and say, what do you actually think is important in life? What are moments when you feel satisfied and you feel good, we feel you're doing something meaningful. And people said different things. Some of them it was playing the guitar. Some of them it was like swimming with their kids. Uh, some of them it was just like one of them had a relative who died of cancer. It was doing a charity thing. Some of them it was writing. You can imagine a whole range of things, right? Um, and he said, well, okay, how can you dedicate more of your life to these meaningful values and less of your life to these junk values? And just having that conversation and checking back in every few weeks, it's like a Weight Watchers for the bullshit of our culture, right? Just doing that once a fortnight for, I think it was, it was in four or six months, led to a really significant shift in these people's values, right? And everyone listening to, to your podcast knows, like, you're not going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the things you bought. You're not going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the likes you got on Instagram, right? It's a banal cliche. You're going to think about moments of love and meaning and connection in your life. But as Professor Kasser put it to me, we live in a machine that is designed to distract us from what is meaningful about life. It's designed to tell you, you don't feel good? Oh, buy this particular fucking shampoo. Buy this, you know, piece of shit trainers that you'll never look at again. You know, whatever bullshit it is, right? Uh, so, I think that's something where you, you meet with your friends. I, I have, I now have these conversations with my friends all the time, right? What is meaningful? Wait, you think you want that. Why do you want that? Is that meaningful to you, right? Just that reorientation in how we think about life. Just thinking, oh, this shit is implanted in my head by people who wanted to sell me something, right? That is not authentic. That is not me. That is not who I am. That is not going to make me feel good. It might give you a little hit for five minutes. We've all had that experience of going and buying an expensive thing and then getting home and just being re feeling really deflated, right? Like you have that little rush and then you feel deflated. So that I would give it is a very concrete example of a kind of, yeah, like kind of Alcoholics Anonymous for the bullshit of the culture, right? Mate, I, I absolutely love it. Johan, I, I couldn't be more happy that, that we spoke today. Um, it's so great hearing your voice because having listened to your audiobook, I, I, I kind of feel like I know you a little because you are so personal in the book. So it's super, I'm stoked that I could talk to you in your office today. Um, the book is uh, Lost Connections Uncovering the Real Cause of the Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. I highly recommend the website as well, thelostconnections.com, which is where a lot of the interviews that Johan's describing um, you can listen to and, uh, you know, you can really dive deep into there. Uh, Johan, when you're next in Australia, make sure you, you come over for a cup of coffee, will you? I had a really weird experience in Australia, actually. But I had, can I tell you a really bizarre story that happened yeah, to me in Australia? First time I came to Australia was 2015. And I spoke at, it was either Melbourne or Sydney first. I made this slightly shit joke that then led to this really weird thing. 
So I think it was actually, I think it was the Sydney Opera House, if I remember right. It was one of them. I said, it was like a weird thing. I arrived, I was in the Sydney Opera, it was bizarre. And I said, I was really disappointed in Australia because I was raised by, mostly by my grandmother and we would obsessively watch the young doctors and sons and daughters. Uh, and although the people in Australia were super nice, the landscape was amazing, I had been raised to expect it would literally be like sons and daughters, right? And I was like, I've been here for two days now and I've not yet been kidnapped and replaced by an identical twin that I never knew existed, right? It's like a slightly shit joke, but like I was jet lagged, right? And the audience slightly laughed and I said, um, is Reg Grundy still alive? Reg Grundy was the guy who made these programs. And someone in the audience shouted out, yes. And I said, well, God should strike Reg Grundy dead for the way he misled the world about Australia, right? Which is a slightly weird thing to say. I was really jet lagged. And it was a slightly awkward laugh in the audience. Very soon after, Reg Grundy had actually died. Oh my God. So I now feel that like when I address Australians, I had the power to just like strike your public figures dead by, by just by, like wishing ill on them. So I'm tempted to ask you if Tony Abbott is still alive, but I will... I will resist the temptation. Yeah, that's another conversation again, but uh, Tony Abbott and others like him 100% believe that they're doing the best thing for the most amount of people. And that is, mm. that's kind of what motivates, what motivates them. And, and that's what I try to remember in my heart, at least when I see the man talk on the telly. Not, you know, lots of right-wing people change their minds and you can appeal to them through love and compassion. And yeah, totally. I don't actually want Tony Abbott to be struck down no. by God. I, want to be clear. I didn't want Reg Grundy to die either. Yeah. I should just say, there's this weird thing that my publishers always ask me to read out, which I won't read out because it makes me sound like a psychopath. But yeah, you mentioned the website, thelostconnections.com, where people can hear what a range of people have said about the book from Elton John to Hillary Clinton, uh, a whole range of people. Yeah. And they can figure out where to follow me on social media and uh, they can figure out where to buy the book and the audiobook. That's what I'm yeah, saying. No, ab- absolutely. And I think one of the things that absolutely most, like not only was the thing in Fiji, I know I'm wrapping up, but the, the thing that really struck me, and, and I hope we can talk about this next time when you do come around, wouldn't it be interesting, particularly in Australia, where only 18 months ago we passed legislation for, for same-sex marriage? Wouldn't it be interesting to investigate a community of gay men and women who, within a generation, had everyone around them dying from a disease that no one knew about uh, to, there's no future, I can't have children, what the fuck am I doing here, to everyone around me is alive and I can fully and wonderfully participate in society. Wouldn't that be an interesting uh, exploration into, you know, within our, our lifetime? One thing I think about a lot, when I get, because part of what I'm arguing with Lost Connections is there are these big forces that are making us depressed and we're going to have to take them on, right? And sometimes you get think, oh God, this is a big thing, right? And when I get depressed, I think about a friend of mine who some of your listeners will know about, a guy called Andrew Sullivan. He's an amazing American, British-American journalist. And um, I remember this thing that happened to Andrew. So in 1993, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive, height of the AIDS crisis, no hope in sight. Loads of his friends were dying all around him. His best friend, Patrick, had just died. And Andrew quit his job and he went to Provincetown, which is a little kind of gay town in Cape Cod, to die. And he decided he was going to do one last thing before he died. He was going to write a book about a crazy utopian idea that no one had ever written a book about before. And he was like, okay, I'll never live to see this happen. No one alive today will live to see it happen. But somewhere further down the line, someone might pick up this book and get this idea, right? The idea he wrote the first ever book about was gay marriage. And when I get depressed, I try to imagine going back in time to Provincetown in 1993 and saying to Andrew, okay, you're not going to believe me, but 24 years from now, I'll be with you when the Supreme Court of the United States quotes this book you're writing now, making it uh, mandatory for every state in the United States to introduce gay marriage. You will be alive to see it. 
you will be married to a man. And the next day after that Supreme Court judgment, you will be invited by the President of the United States to a White House that will be lit up in the colours of the rainbow flag to celebrate what you and other people have achieved. Oh, and by the way, that president, he's going to be black, right? That would have sounded like the most ridiculous science fiction you can ever imagine. It'd be like me saying to you, okay, so 20, 23 years from now, a transgender prime minister of Australia will invite us to the lodge to smoke crack with her, right? Not that that's what we want. I mean, the transgender prime minister, yes, the crack, no. But the, but you can see, like, it would have sounded ridiculous, right? It happened. Andrew lived to see it, right? Incredible changes can happen when people band together, they fight for them, they appeal in a spirit of love and compassion to the people around them. And of course, things can get worse as well, as you will have noticed from the news in the last few years. But, you know, we we can we absolutely have the power to change things for the better. As a gay person, I've seen things change in ways that are just unimaginable, right? Like the, the ways I, I didn't even conceive that they could change like that. The other day I was on the tube here in London and I saw these two girls who couldn't have been more than 16 were making out. And um, I was actually, it was funny because I was looking at them and I was so happy I was smiling. And then I realized they thought I was some like old pervert and I had to like look away. <laughs> but, uh, but like we've seen these incredible changes will carry on seeing incredible changes if we fight for them. And these things that are driving these very deep epidemics of despair that are manifesting through depression and anxiety and addiction and political extremism and rage, um, we can deal with them, right? That They can be understood, they can be challenged, they can be dealt with. Amazing. Johan, I'm, I'm so glad to speak to you, mate. And um, I'm, I'm, also, I'm also really happy. Did you go out to my friend Rich's house out in Calabasas? Uh, oh, Rich Roll, yeah, yeah, I love yeah. Him. It's a great sport, isn't it? He's a he's a wonderful man. Really nice. yeah. I'm I'm glad you got to hang with Rich. He's a he helped me a lot. He helped me a lot. He's a when I lived in LA, he's a good guy. Oh. Have a fantastic day. Have a, sleep well, mate, and I hope your uh, your cold gets better. I'm gonna go and drink an enormous amount of lemsip. All right, Cheers. see Thanks. you, brother. Thanks, Bye. Heaps. Bye, bye. That was Johan Hari. You can find him on Twitter at johanhari101, J-O-H-A-N-N-H-R-I-101, or head to his website, thelostconnections.com. Big thanks to Rachel Barrett, the extraordinary Rachel Barrett, who helped me make this podcast possible today by making sure me and Johan were in the same place at the same time. Andy Ma for working across the summer break to get this podcast up today. Hermione from Bloomsbury Publishing for helping me also and Rachel, get a time with Johan. And also Mike Mills, who made epic music for us today, also known as Toe Hider. Thank you so much for listening today. Whatever you're doing, crocheting, bunningsing with your kids, or going on road trips, I hope whatever you're doing, you are well and happy, and I'll talk to you later in the week. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.